All right. Good morning, everybody. Happy spring. Here it's supposed to be in the 60s most of this week, so I'm very excited about that. <laughs> so today is the fifth Sunday now in the season of Lent. Um, and uh, that means that we've only got two weeks to go before Easter, believe it or not. Uh, I hope that if you decided to fast from something for Lent, that uh, you've been successful in your fast. But I just wanted to say, even if you have uh, messed up, that doesn't mean you should just give up entirely. Uh, One of the lies that we sometimes believe is that if I can't do something perfectly, then I shouldn't do it at all. (laughs) So if you messed up at all in your fast, uh, what you should think is, well, I got two weeks to recommit myself to the fast, And that still means that I can save some money or save some time. And then remember, what I'm encouraging us to do is take the money or time that you save from your fast and then use it to connect with God, uh, to connect with your loved ones, and just in general to help make earth a little bit more like heaven. Okay, So there's still two weeks to do that. That's a lot of time. That's a significant amount of time and potentially uh, money as well. So even if you messed up, don't. Don't let that keep you from recommitting. So we're in our third week now in our series on the cross, the hidden of wisdom of God revealed. And each week we've been considering a different facet of the significance of the cross. Two weeks ago we looked at the cross as our revelation of what God is like. Last week we looked at the cross as our example of how we are to live. And this week we're looking at the cross as... Our salvation. Our salvation. What happened at the cross somehow makes it possible for us to be saved. Now that leads to some questions like, saved from what? And how is it that the cross enables our salvation? How how does that work? And those are actually really big, difficult questions. Uh, Believe it or not, when I was in seminary, I took an elective class that was just called Theories of the Atonement. And basically what that means is theories of how to answer those questions that I just listed. A whole class uh, just on that. So those are big questions. They're tough questions. They're questions that theologians and biblical scholars have wrestled with for, for a long time. And if you've been here long enough, you've heard me say what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it again. You do not have to understand exactly how this all works in order to trust that Jesus can save you. Uh, Just as you don't have to know exactly how your car works in order to drive it. If I needed to know, I wouldn't be going anywhere, right? (laughs) You don't have to know exactly how your computer works in order to send an email. You know, you'd have to know some basics in order to utilize these things. Um, And it's similar, I think, with with our understanding of the gospel and how this all works. But you don't have to understand it completely in order to benefit from it. You can trust in Jesus and trust in the power of his cross to save you uh, without actually fully understanding how that, that all works. But I think we should at least try to understand what the Bible reveals to us about what's called atonement, meaning how God and humanity are reconciled. That's what that word means, atonement. We should try to understand, because the more that we can understand, the more that we can appreciate. And our appreciation should lead us to greater worship of the one who has saved us. 
And so that's what we're going to try to do this morning. We're, we're going to try to understand a little bit more what we're saved from and how the cross makes that salvation possible. Sound good? All right. Now, typically, when people talk about this subject, they turn to Paul's letters in the New Testament, or maybe they'll turn to the book of Hebrews, because those books deal a lot with this, this subject. But I want to start from a different place. I want to start with the words of Jesus. Uh, this week, I did a, a skim of all the red letters in the Gospels, and I asked myself, what does Jesus himself teach about this subject of, you know, how, how does the cross save us? Does he say anything about it? And actually, if you look through all the, le- the red letters, you can do it, you know, in about an hour or so, uh, you will find that he does not talk a lot about that. But there is at least one line that we can use as a starting point. It's recorded in, in two of the four gospel accounts. Mark 10.45, Jesus says... For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus saw giving his life, dying on the cross, like the payment of a ransom. Now, when you hear that word ransom, uh, you probably think of, you know, when somebody gets kidnapped And uh, then the kidnapper sends a letter to their loved ones and says, you know, if you don't pay a ransom of a million dollars, you'll never see your loved one again. And if that's where your mind goes, that's okay. That works. Um, But it's helpful for us to recognize that that word ransom was used in a very specific context in those days. In those days, slavery was common. And if somebody was going to be released from slavery, somebody else needed to pay a ransom to set them free. So that's that's the context we should have in mind when we hear Jesus gave his life as a ransom. Um, There's something about Jesus' death on the cross that is like a payment that gets us out of slavery, out of captivity. It's kind of like Uh, We are bound in chains, or we are locked in a cage. And when Jesus gave his life on the cross, he enabled the way for that cage to be opened, for the chains to fall off, and for us to move into this glorious release from captivity. But of course, that just raises more questions, right? Like, well, what exactly are we in slavery to? And how does Jesus' death free us from that? So if we look at Jesus' ministry and we ask ourselves the question, uh, whoops, missed those. What does Jesus think we are in slavery to? What does Jesus think we are in slavery to? I've got a list of four things. Okay, number one, unjust power structures. If you look at Jesus' ministry as a whole, you, you get the sense that he thinks that humanity is in slavery to unjust power structures. Okay, the first time that Jesus announces, begins his ministry, he stands up in the synagogue and he quotes a line from the prophet Isaiah. And the line is, uh, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. So, Jesus recognized that there were unjust economic systems at work in the world that privileged certain people and that 
disadvantaged other people, and he was coming to bring a message for those people who were disadvantaged, good news for them, right? Also, uh, Jesus confronted unjust religious power structures. If you read throughout the Gospels, you will see that there is no one that Jesus confronted more than the religious authorities, right? Because the religious authorities who had power in that domain They were always twisting the scriptures, misusing God's law in order to privilege themselves, in order to benefit their pride, their wallets, right? Their lust for power. And Jesus consistently confronted those unjust power structures. So another answer to what does Jesus think we are in slavery to is physical decay and death. Physical decay and death. That same time that Jesus stood up in the synagogue, when he quoted from Isaiah, he also quoted this line, uh, The Spirit of the Lord is on me to give recovery of sight to the blind. And if you look throughout Jesus' ministry, you see that, right? He was always healing people, right? Healing people of blindness, healing people of deafness, making the lame walk, and even, on a few occasions, raising people who had died back to life. And all that demonstrates Jesus understood we are in slavery to physical decay and death. That's why Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Jesus came to push back against that enslavement. And then a third answer, what does Jesus think we are in slavery to? And this one is a little hard for people in our day and age, but I think it's important is Satan and the spiritual beings who serve him. Satan and the spiritual beings who serve him. Now, I know, okay, in our Western post-enlightenment culture, saying that sort of thing can sound superstitious, uh, especially in uh, circles of higher education. People can look at you as backwards if if you believe in this stuff. But if we take Jesus seriously, we have to take his worldview seriously, And clearly, Jesus believed in the reality of the demonic realm of Satan and and demons. You know, you look throughout his ministry, he often cast demons out of people. Um, he, uh, He recognized these beings as real, and he repeatedly confronted them and demonstrated power over them. And he also recognizes throughout his ministry that there is a leader of these dark spiritual forces, Uh, the one that we would call Satan. Uh, In the Gospel of John, shortly before Jesus is taken away to be crucified, he says, the prince of this world will be driven out. So there Jesus is acknowledging that there is someone who is in charge of this world who should not be in charge of this world. And that there is, uh, in, in what Jesus is about to do, in going to his crucifixion, the prince of this world will lose his power over the world, okay? And then finally, uh, a fourth thing that Jesus thinks we are in slavery to is our sin. Our sin. What is sin? Sin is our tendency to rebel against God's will. It's our tendency to value things that aren't worthy of that level of value. Uh, It's our tendency to worship the wrong things. It's our tendency to do harm to ourselves and and to our neighbors. 
Um, it is our tendency to fall short of our calling as God's image bearers. We're supposed to represent his character in creation. And whenever we fall short of that, that is sin. And we all fall short. We all have compulsions to sin. And Jesus recognized this. He's, that's why he said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. He said, I've come to rescue people who are in bondage to sin. And when you think about it, uh, being set free from sin, it involves at least two things. Right? First, there's just being set free from the thinking and the action itself of sin. And the Bible calls this repentance, right? And this involves becoming aware of our sin, confessing our sin, and then actually taking steps to turn from it, right? But even if we were to today completely repent of all of our sin and live perfectly for the rest of our lives, which I don't think we could do, but even if we did, we still would not be entirely free from sin, Right? Because we would still be wondering, am I free from the guilt of my previous sin? Right? That's, that's one of the, the chains that enslaves us, is this question of, am I okay before God? Am I forgiven uh, before God? And Jesus certainly recognized that we have this need to be forgiven of our sins. There were multiple times in his ministry uh, where he proclaimed to somebody, your sins are forgiven. And he claimed that he had the authority to forgive sins. All right, so look at that list again. The things Jesus thinks we are in slavery to, unjust power structures, physical decay and death, Satan and the spiritual beings who serve him, and our sin. Now, I think we can actually streamline this list a little bit because I think unjust power structures are actually a consequence of those other three things. Um, the Bible presents uh, the unjust power structures of the world as being influenced by what's called the powers and principalities, uh, which are Satan and the spiritual beings who serve them, uh, serve him. So there's this idea that these, these evil spiritual beings work to influence things politically, economically, uh, even religiously. Okay? And then there's the reality of our sin, which makes us susceptible to the devil's influence, which helps to create these unjust power structures. And then there's also the fact of our own death, which the devil can use our fear of death to manipulate us into contributing more and more to the unjust power structures. Uh, if your number one priority in life is saving your own skin, then the devil can use that to get you to do a lot of bad stuff. If you look throughout history, uh, you will see that. So, Unjust power structures, we can kind of put that under the category of these other three things. And so traditionally, the way that the church has summarized what we need to be saved from, what we need to be ransomed from, is to just simply say, sin, death, and the devil. Sin, death, and the devil. These are the cages that, that hold us, the chains that bind us, that we need to be freed from. And what I want us to do this morning is to just take a moment to feel our need for salvation from these things. To recognize it and feel it. You know, it is possible to go through most of life without really feeling the need for salvation. Um, I remember 
The church that I grew up in used to put on an annual concert, which attracted a lot of people from surrounding towns. And uh, usually at the end of that concert, somebody would get up to speak, and they would talk about Jesus, and sometimes they would invite people to be saved. And I remember when I was in high school, a friend of mine had gone to this concert. He knew it was my church, and so he messaged me on Instant Messenger. Remember Instant Messenger? Um, and he, he said something like, why was that guy talking about needing to be saved? Saved from what? He sounded crazy. And uh, I thought, well, my friend doesn't really feel a need for salvation. Now, that, I, I don't want to throw any, anyone under the bus. I don't even remember the speech. So it's possible that the speaker didn't do a great job of, of, of helping this person to understand his need for salvation. Or it's possible that uh, this, my friend just wasn't ready to hear that message. Or it's possible that, for whatever reason, he just didn't feel the need for salvation. But I think there's a lot of people in our culture like that, who just don't really feel that they're in slavery to these things. And there's several reasons for that. I mean, we live in a time where a lot of people deny the existence of the spiritual realm entirely. So you're not going to feel much of a need for salvation from demons and, and the devil if you don't even believe in that sort of thing. Um, we also live in a time where people live a lot longer. You know, we have antibiotics and anesthesia and that sort of thing. Throughout most of history, people didn't have that. So it's easier to convince yourself that you're immortal, even though somewhere deep down you know you're not, but you're not forced to think about death as much as people in the past used to. Okay, but if we take the time to really just get honest with ourselves and think about the reality of our, our condition as human beings, we should feel a need for salvation. If you sit with it, especially alone at night when you wake up and you can't sleep, you will feel the need for salvation. You know, I mean, just take the fact that we are born into a world where death is inevitable and yet, in our hearts, we long for immortality. Just that fact alone. We need salvation. You know, if you, if you really consider the possibility, what if all my memories, everything I've learned, all of the pain I've gone through and battles I've fought, all of the relationships that I've developed, what if all of that, all memory of it, it just eternally ceases at the moment of my death? That is tragic. That is an unbearably tragic thought if you really, really think about it. Death is something we need salvation from. And then there's the problem of our sin. You know, we just seem to have this pathological uh, tendency to choose the wrong, to mess things up, to harm our relationships, to harm others, to harm ourselves. And the Apostle Paul himself lamented about this when he said, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. I'm sure many of us here can identify with that, right? And then, of course, there's the problem of our guilt. You know, and we might be able to convince ourselves, well, I'm, I'm pretty good. But when we are convincing ourselves of that, we're usually comparing ourselves to others. But if we imagine ourselves standing before a perfect and holy God, you know, and having to give account of every thought we've had, every action, every word spoken, 
That's a frightening thought. And it should be a frightening thought, right? Because we know deep down we have this problem with, with sin, with choosing the wrong. Deep down we know that we each have contributed to the brokenness of the world. So our sin and the guilt that comes with it, right? This is something that we need salvation from. And then, lastly, there's the problem of the devil and the unseen forces of darkness. Now, I think that most of us have an intuitive sense that these, these beings exist. Uh, we have an intuitive sense that there is more to reality than what we can perceive with our five senses. And we also have an intuitive sense that some of what exists is, doesn't have good intentions for us. That some of what exists is opposed to us and wants our destruction. That is what uh, most cultures throughout history have believed. It's what the majority of cultures in the world today believe. It's what Jesus believed, and it's what the apostles believed. These beings seek our destruction, and they seek to lead societies astray, to lead societies away from truth and from justice and from respect for, for human life and human dignity. And even if you're a skeptic and you're like, I don't know if I buy into that, I, I, I just I don't know if that makes any sense to me. Okay, even if you're a skeptic, I'm sure you can agree that there are always trends at work pulling society away from truth and justice and respect for life and respect for human dignity, right? These trends are always there, right? Trends of propaganda, misinformation, greed, racism, violence. And no society is immune to them. There's never been a perfect society. We human beings have been at work trying to create societies for a long time. We never succeeded in creating a perfect society, right? And it, it, it seems like just when a society starts to deal with one of these trends and actually like address it, another different one pops up, another problem. And these trends, they seem resistant to education, uh, they, 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 they seem resistant to, to reason, right? Even though they're so pathological, we still fall for them. And so we need salvation from these trends. That I'm sure we can all agree on. And as Christians, we believe that one of the, the things that influences these trends is these, these beings that seek our destruction, Satan and demons. And we need salvation from them. So we need salvation. Okay? We need to be set free from sin, death, and the devil. And Jesus' death is the ransom. It is the sufficient payment to buy us out of slavery from these things. But why? How does that work? Why does Jesus dying on a cross make it possible for us to be saved from these things? It's a good question for you to reflect on if somebody were to ask you as a Christian. Like, how do you answer that? It's a little tricky to answer that question. Believe me, I thought about it a lot this week. How am I going to present this? Well, I want to start by saying there's actually a lot of ways to answer that question. And I believe many of them can simultaneously be true. That's important to recognize. So I'm going to present one way of looking at it, but don't take what I'm about to say as excluding all the 
other possible ways. Okay, I think there are some ways that people talk about that aren't necessarily helpful or correct. But in general, if you look at what you would call the major atonement theories, I think most of them are by and large true. So there's multiple ways of spinning this gem of the atonement and, and looking at it. Okay. But here's one way of looking at it. Okay, in order to understand why Christ's death on the cross is so powerful, we have to go all the way back to the beginning of the story, all the way back to Genesis. In the beginning, right, God creates a world and he gives human beings the special responsibility and dignity as his image bearers. And what that means is that we have this responsibility to be like second in command in creation. Okay, God is first in command, but he has created us to function like second in command. He's created us to rule over the rest of the earth. And Adam and Eve, as humanity's representatives, are given a command from God. They're told, you know, you can eat from all the trees in the garden here, but there's one tree that you shouldn't eat from. And if you eat from that tree, you're going to die. In other words, if you disobey, if you don't trust God's wisdom and his goodness, the consequence of going astray is death, right? That physical decay and death. If you go against God's rule, then your capacity to rule over the rest of creation is going to be compromised. Now, uh, the physical world is going to start to rule over you. And that's going to manifest itself in death. So, enter the serpent, who we more commonly know as the devil or Satan. The serpent comes to Eve and deceives her. And the way he deceives her is interesting. He convinces her that God is not worth trusting. And specifically, he convinces her that the reason that God doesn't want her to eat from the tree is because God is trying to withhold something good from her. That God doesn't really have her best interests at heart. Okay? Basically, what the serpent deceives her into thinking is that God's not really good. He doesn't really love you. He doesn't really want what's best for you. And so Eve is deceived. And rather than using her capacity to rule, to rule over the serpent, the serpent rules over her. And she eats from the tree. And then Adam, her husband, I mean, Adam's even worse. Adam doesn't need to be deceived. He just caves to a little bit of peer pressure. He, he eats the fruit as well when Eve gives it to, to him. And then God confronts Adam and Eve. And he tells them that, that because of what they've done, death will eventually come to them. Physical decay and death. Just as he said initially, just like he warned. And so, from the very beginning of the Bible, the third chapter of the first book, we're only three chapters in, from the very beginning, a promise was given, um, or excuse me, from the very beginning, humanity is in this terrible situation, right? We were created to rule, but we have ceded our rule over to the devil. And we've ceded our rule because we've sinned. And just like Adam and Eve today, we fail to trust in the goodness of God and the goodness of his commands. And that lack of trust leads to sin, and that, then that sin leads to death. 
So this is the very sad state of affairs that humanity finds itself in, that we are in. But all the way back in the third chapter of Genesis, God makes a promise that this sad state of affairs is not going to last forever. So here's where he makes this promise. Very cryptic, strange verse, Genesis 3.15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I realize it's a really confusing verse. But basically, what God is saying here is that one day, a human being will come, someone born of a woman, the offspring of a woman, and that human being will overcome the devil, will conquer the devil. Humanity ceded their rule to the devil, but one day, a human being is going to take it back. That's what this promise is. And there's also this indication that the devil is going to try to kill that human being. It's, it's described like a snake striking the heel of someone who's trying to stomp on it, right? So God is saying the devil is going to try to kill this, this human being, but this human being will crush the devil. This human being will ultimately win over the devil. And we know now that the fulfillment of this prophecy was Jesus and what happened at the cross, right? Jesus was a human offspring. He was fully human. He was born of a woman, and he defeated the devil. The devil tried to kill him by motivating the power structures of Jesus' day to kill him on a cross, right? But in crucifying him, the devil was actually crushing himself. The devil might have thought that the cross was his way of striking his heel, striking at Jesus' heel, of killing him, but it was actually the way that he was destroyed. Now, why would that be? Why would the cross actually defeat the devil? Well, try to keep everything I've said in, in mind so far about Genesis and that whole story. In order for humanity to be set free from the dominion of the devil... A human being needed to rule over the devil. Remember, human beings were the ones who ceded their rule to the devil. So a human being needed to gain it back. But all human beings since Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve have been slaves uh, to sin and death. And so no one has been able to rule over the devil. No one's been able to conquer him and resist his temptations. But then, God the Son... Jesus takes on human flesh. He becomes a human being in this miracle that we call the, the incarnation. God takes on flesh. He is born of a woman, as the prophecy said. And then he does what no other human being could do. He lives a sinless life. He resists all of the devil's temptations. Right? He trusts in the goodness of God the Father consistently, without fail, even when that means having to suffer and to go to the cross, right? And he lives without fear of death. And the devil watches him, and the devil is scared, right? Because he knows that he is not ruling over this human being. This human being is ruling over him. And he doesn't like that. And so the devil, that serpent, he says, I'm going to strike his heel. I'm going to kill him. 
And so he exercises all the powers of influence that he has to take the unjust power structures of the day and make them kill Jesus, right? He, he, he pulls the levers of the Sanhedrin and the, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, of, of King Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Roman Empire, and he gets them all to come together to kill Jesus. And then the powers of darkness unleash all of their fury on this human being, this, this son of man, the offspring of the woman, who isn't following suit with all the other human beings, right? Who isn't succumbing to the domain of darkness, but is raging against it. And so the powers of darkness, they unleash all of their fury. Jesus is, is scourged and a crown of thorns is shoved into his head and he's, he's stripped naked and he's mocked and nails are driven through his hands and his feet and he's mocked and he's, he's spit on. A spear is thrown into his side. And then he dies. And the devil thinks he's won. He's like, whew, I took care of that human that was trying to rule over me other than the other way around. And he thinks that in killing this man, he has retained his dominion over humanity, right? But no. Because unlike every other human being, the devil had no right to kill Jesus. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. What we earn for our sin is death. That That was true all the way back with Adam and Eve, right? When they ate from the tree. But Jesus hasn't sinned. He hasn't earned death. So in killing Jesus, the devil has broken the rules. The devil has exercised an authority that he had no authority uh, to exercise, no right to exercise. And so because of that, he loses his dominion over humanity. And of course, he's also failed to kill Jesus, right? (laughs) Because death can't keep its hold on Jesus, because Jesus was sinless. So on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, which we're going to be celebrating uh, in two weeks. The devil struck Jesus' heel, but Jesus crushed his head. So the way of understanding this is because God took on human flesh, because he became a human being, he was able to undo the curse that humanity brought on itself. So now, we human beings, we don't have to be under the dominion of the devil anymore. Because through Jesus Christ, we have a new representative, right? A much better representative than Adam and Eve. Uh, A representative who overcame the devil on our behalf. Like, he ruled over the devil, not the other way around. And he promises that if we trust in him, he will give us eternal life, and he will give us victory Forgiveness uh, over sin. And one way of putting it is he will transfer us from the dominion of darkness to the dominion of light. So, to conclude, okay, if you are feeling the chains of slavery today, slavery to sin, slavery to death, slavery to these unseen wicked powers that are influencing the world, I want you to hear this this morning. Jesus has won the victory over these things. And he has won it on our behalf. You and I could not break out of our chains. We could not do it. But God became a human being so that he could win the victory on our behalf. 
You know, one analogy that I like is if you think of humanity like a sports team, we've got a terrible record, right? We cannot defeat the opposition. We're a failing team. But through the incarnation, God has joined our team. And because he's joined our team, we can have victory over the opposition. But here's the thing. We have to trust him. We have to trust him. That was Eve's mistake in the very beginning. She didn't trust God. She trusted the serpent instead of God, right? She trusted his lie that God was trying to withhold something from her, that God wasn't really good, that God didn't really have her best interests at heart. The root of all sin is that lack of trust in the goodness and love of God. But we have every reason to trust, right? Because Jesus has revealed to us what God is like. God loves us. God was willing to go from heaven to earth, from glory to humility, to rescue us. Even suffering and dying on a cross. So we have every reason to trust him. Trust him. He wants to set you free. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we recognize that when we talk about the cross and when we look at scripture, we're, we're looking into holy mysteries that can be really hard to, to understand. And Father, I pray that if any of this is confusing, that you just help us to simply remember, Lord, um, that by you dying on the cross, Lord, you have enabled us to be free, free from sin, death, and the devil. Um, and Lord, I pray that you would grant us even further into understanding into how that works. And help us, Lord, just to be in awe of it, Lord, in awe of the way that um, Scripture reveals uh, these mysteries. And, and help us, Lord, to, to be captivated by them, to stand in awe and wonder of them, Lord. And we thank you for fighting the battle on our behalf, the battle that we could not win. Um, we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.